Let me encourage the rest of you, if you brought uh, a Bible with you, to get it out and open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and then on the middle of your table, you have a little Next 10 card, and if you would get that out, and I'm going to cover some of those before we get into the text today. Um, <clears throat> when you came in, uh, there were some little bricks in the back, and if you missed last week, um, you can catch that podcast, but take one of those little miniature uh, center blocks home with you today, and, um, and put it in a place where you'll be reminded that you have a critical um, important role to play in the kingdom of God, and um, that you are still growing, and God is maturing you, and that you've got to yield and adapt your life to Jesus, build your life on the foundation of Jesus in order um, to accomplish all that he has. So that's um, in the back. You can pick one of those up. Also, keychains, and uh, we, we don't hand those out so that you can just be stylish. Um, we want you to pray for the church. When uh, Paul is, again, telling the Ephesians church, the Ephesian church in chapter 6, the full armor of God, he goes through the whole list. And then he says, you know, using the sword of the Spirit, praying in all times and in all ways. And so we believe that, this, that the kingdom of light is expanded and the kingdom of darkness is pushed back, literally pushed back or held back through our prayer. This is not something that we just flippantly talk about. This is an encouragement that we would, would, we would make a commitment, that we would find great joy out of conversation with the Father, that we would intercede on behalf of other people, um, that we would be people of prayer. And um, we've looked back and we've celebrated, and this is just a little glimpse. We're going to get more into this next week. Um, next week is kind of, uh, uh, kind of the... The bookend to our celebration, and um, we're going to we're going to have a good time, and we're going to talk about some things and wrap up this thing, and then afterwards we're going to eat lunch together. Um, and so we got a couple guys making some um, incredible uh, jambalaya, and I've tasted that before. And so after the service, um, you can go pick up a T-shirt, and then we're going to start serving uh, food, and um, you can spatial and social distance at your tables, and we'll kind of uh, do that whole bit. That'll be um, next week. And during that, we're going to really go into these a little more in, in, in depth. But I, I want to give you an overview real quick, and then we're going to jump into the text. So if you've got one of these little cards, um, this is as Jason and I and, and other people, um, our elders with Jeff and um, even others, part of our staff, we've been praying through these things. All right, Lord, what, what is next for the church? This has been an incredible 10 years and the church today looks nothing like what I envisioned it 10 years ago. Isn't that just crazy how God does it? And I love this, that he doesn't lay out the whole plan for us. And he doesn't tell us every step of the way. He just says, hey, come and follow me. And he puts this little bit of a dream and vision in our heart. And we don't even know all of it. Paul would say that we, we see through a glass dimly. But yet, as we follow him one step after another, he begins to remake us and conform us into his image. And he begins to do these incredible things in the world as we are his hands and feet. And this is our best shot at the next 10. This is the things that we hope to see God do far more than we can ask or think. And when we put these down, we're not going to feel like a failure if we don't hit any of these. These are just some, 
um, some, some markers or some goals for us to aim at. And whatever the Lord does, he does. And we are on board with that. But one is to see a member, uh, every member of the discipleship relationship, iron on iron. When you come and gather with us in a big crowd, this is, this is like uh, sprinkling yeast on the dough. But when you get in a discipleship relationship, we begin to rub those truths in and see incongruency in our life with God's word. And we're able to, we, we use the phrase gospel each other, remind each other of the gospel and our identity in that. And that comes through discipleship. And it's a high value that we hold. And to see uh, uh, 10 churches planted in the next 10 years. There's no greater evangelism tool. If you've been with us, you know that we consider church planting such a a high call. And we put money and people and effort into that. To this date, the past 10 years, we've planted four churches um, out of our church and um, sent people and money and teams to do those things. And we hope to see 10 more in the next 10 years. And of course, We've partnered with probably 50 or 100 churches already, um, but we want to see God raise up church planters in our own church and say, okay, I want to take that step and plant a church and reach my area, my neighborhood for Christ. Um, to see 50 kids adopted or fostered, you heard that in the video, that's one of our, our values. As a matter of fact, we're having baby dedication in a couple of weeks, and I don't know, we're dedicating six or seven or eight babies, and half of the ones on that list um, were adopted or fostered. It's just an incredible picture of the gospel. Um, to befriend 50 homeless or displaced through the hub. Um, befriend is maybe a, a very vague word, but if you know our story very much, you know that we had a friend named Jesse that we met downtown. That's the reason we started serving, and he was sleeping outside of the place we were meeting, and he became a friend, like a, like a friend friend. And he spent Thanksgivings with us and people in our church. And we took him to work every day and we found him a home and got him a job. That's, a, that's what it means to befriend, to become an advocate for it, to invite into your family. I would love to see us not just serve meals. I love the serving of the meals. We served last week and we only served, it was a really low crowd last week uh, downtown. We only served about 20, 25 people and they ate all the taco soup their heart could desire. I mean, uh, Matt prepared for 200, I think, and um, we were just uh, taco soup. Everybody, taco soup everywhere. Um, but a man shook my hand on the way out, very sincere. He said, I'm just so glad you showed up. I wouldn't have had food today if you didn't show up today. And I was like, this is why we do this. And it's a lot of work, and I know it is, and it's hard, and it's no one Sunday nights, and you're tired, and it's been a long week. It's one of the greatest things we can do. Even Jesus said, if you hand out a cup of cold water in my name, and you might say, well, they don't deserve it. It's not about who deserves what. Jesus asked us to go and do it. And so we do it out of love to him. To give away a million dollars to our mission partners. This is probably the craziest goal. I would love to give away a million dollars to our mission partners. Um, we, have a, we have a big mission offering every uh, Christmas time, and we give money out of our budget too. I would love to some way that God would trust us enough to pass through our open hands a million dollars that we could put in places people are serving, in places of great need. We've got those mission partners all over the world. Um, to see, uh, number six, to see uh, 50 different people from our congregation called to ministry or church leadership. Sometimes God puts a specific call, unique vocational call sometimes, or a bivocational call, or I'm going to step into some kind of real leadership in the church. I'm going to be a youth minister or lead the children's team or something like that. I pray that we would see that. This is something only the Holy Spirit can do. Not that we can't. Uh, everything on this list, I think, is only, only something God can do. Number seven, 
that we would, uh, every, every member would understand their own missional calling. We use this phrase, I know it's kind of an overused phrase, but God has specifically created you and called you that you would enter into the ripped open fabric of society and begin to mend it back together in a very unique way. He's called and gifted you that, given you spiritual gifts, given you experiences, and called you to go do this very thing. Jesus said, even um, as I have been sent, now I am sending you. We would understand that. We'd love to work with you as pastors. One of the greatest joys. I mean, Jason and I literally get giddy when we get to meet with people about this very thing and we get to talk with them and pray with them. And some of them have started nonprofits and some of them have taken this real serious and that's morphed into, hey, I'm going to go plant a church in New Orleans. It's just been this incredible thing. Number uh, eight, to see 10 missionaries sent out from our church. People who feel this real call to missions who are going to leave what they know here. And that could be a journeyman for a year or two years or for their entire life. I don't know what that would be like, but I would love to see that. And then we would send 50 short-term teams out that would go for a week or two and go serve in some pretty difficult and dark places. Number nine, to have a missional community presence within five driving uh, minutes of driving distance in the Shreveport-Bossier city area. Um, you saw this in the video. Uh, it's a little confusing. The missional communities, community. If you're new to our church, you're like, man, what, what are they talking about? Uh, life groups. Uh, it's, it's all the same thing. It's just these people who do life together, who have the spiritual ownership of their neighborhood, who encourage each other with the gospel, who do real life together. And it's hard to have one of these and meet regularly if it's too far away. And some of you have experienced this. You, you live in Halton and you got to drive to Benton or vice versa or however it works. We'd love to see more and more of those started. And then number 10, to own a more centralized uh, ministry center. If you know where our ministry center is now, it is in like deep Benton. Like you go through downtown and keep going, right? We're way out there. We know half of our church. That's a long way from you. You're in Blanchard or Halton. And we'd like to have a more centralized ministry center that everybody could um, get to a little more easily. And we would also like to own it. And this is a crazy thing. But I've been asking God um, that he would just uh, gift us a ministry center somewhere. And everybody, and I, and I ask people too, not just God. I say, hey, man, would you mind donating that? Dude, that's for sale for a million dollars. Well, maybe God would tell you to give it to us. I don't know. That's, I mean, he's done those kind of things before, um, and I'm not afraid to ask him. Um, and if he doesn't come through, then I'm going to ask you to help me help us get this. Um, uh, I, I don't know if we'll ever have a building that will seat, uh, you know, tons of people. Um, we do pretty good borrowing other people's buildings. But if we had a, like, centralized ministry center where we could have some... Um, Church planters kind of come up and train through there. We've got an intern program that we're uh, creating and have already been using. And then our missional communities, community groups already use the one we have. So that's kind of our hope and dream. And we're just praying. Um, and we wrote these down for you, but they're, they're planned in pencil. And we ask, Holy Spirit, change whatever you need to change. But we're going to go after these. We're going to go after these things. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into our message today. And as I pray aloud, would you pray silently where you're at that God in his favor and in his grace and in his mercy, that he would allow us to see some visible answers to these things that we're praying for the 50 homeless befriended or the kids fostered and adopted. Of people coming to faith of missionaries being sent out, of churches being planted. Lord, these, 
These, these are so high and lofty goals that it's only you that could accomplish that. We, we, we will not meet any of these. And, and, and these people look at me or Jason and say, man, I'm so thankful for your leadership that we accomplished. No, this would be only you, God. Only you could do these things. And we ask you, what is you say in your word that you would be able to do far more than we could ask or think. And we trust you with these steps of faith. And as we look into your word, Lord, would you lay on our heart the step of faith that each of us individually need to take. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. When we planted the church, we started using this phrase rescue ship we actually used the word missionaries at first and we still use that word kind of interchangeably but everyone thought about the guy who you know leaves and go overseas to do the missionary work and so we started using this phrase rescue ship to talk about why the church is here Jesus said he came to seek and save the last the lost and the least and he has sent us as a church as his body to fulfill that mission and that is why the church is here we are here right to point everyone else in the darkness of the world that we live in to the glory of God, not to ourselves. We are to be just mirrors that reflect the glory of God to the watching world. And so we use this idea, rescue ship, out of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all. This is the phrase right here. If you underline in your Bible, you should underline this. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. You see the motivation. It's Christ's love that compels us. That pushes us out because of his great love towards us. While we were yet sinners, he took this initiating step towards us and loved us and befriended us and bestowed upon us grace and mercy. And then he is sending us to do the same, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That describes a rescue ship, does it not? A rescue ship compared to a cruise ship. A cruise ship is all about your comfort. Got to have the right temperature and the right settings and the beautiful scenery. We want to know the agenda. We want to go play some trivia games and maybe see some, some shows in the ballroom. We want to have gourmet breakfasts and... That's what a cruise ship's for, all these great memories. A rescue ship doesn't exist for those things. They might not ever see the coast of Jamaica unless there's a hurricane. Because rescue ships are there to rescue people. And in the same way the church has been sent that we would be a rescue ship. I think this is best summed up in Jesus' maybe most famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read the actual sermon at the end of the service, but I want to focus on verse 13. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read God's word in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13? It reads, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. You can be seated. This is one part of Jesus' most famous sermon. And I love the focus and the illustrations that he uses. He uses three here. He uses that of salt, that of light, and that of a city on a hill. And I want to talk about salt and lights and that city uh, pretty briefly this morning under this idea of Jesus called himself the light of the world, and then he says here that you are the light of the world, speaking to his disciples, speaking to the church today. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. God expects us to be spiritually potent, spiritually contagious, spiritually compelling, that we would not just merely exist in the world, but God would do something in us that would be something that would preserve, right, the, the more fabric of society, that we would be lights that would be sent into dark places. And ultimately, the church would be this city on a hill. And as you looked at it from far off, you would see refuge ahead. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and not congratulate you but that they would see your good works, your good deeds, your life lived in countercultural step compared to society. But most people who spend any time at church often see something else completely. And what they see doesn't draw them in. It repels them. Those who love the darkness will always reject those and ridicule those who bring the light. That's nothing new. And it shouldn't surprise us when when we face some sort of persecution for being light in the midst of darkness or salt in a flavorless society. It happened to the early church. It happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. But at the same time, Jesus and the early church were being persecuted. They were also drawing people to themselves. There was something so compelling and contagious about the words of Jesus lived out in a life. They were potent. So much so that the early church exploded with gross growth uh, despite of fierce opposition from Rome and from the Jews and even from Satan himself. When we look at the early church, we see these three things. We've talked about these before that were so very evident that evangelism was natural. They were always bragging on Jesus, inviting people to Jesus. That their lives had been visibly changed. Think about Zacchaeus or... Paul the Apostle, and on and on we could go. Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night, the Samaritan woman at the well. You just keep going through and every one of these lives so radically changed. And the communities they lived in were made better because the salt and light resided there. So what's happened to us? How has this spirit of religion choked out the very life and expression of Jesus that, is, that we're supposed to be the bride of Christ himself? 
When most Christians hear about being salt and light, they just sort of sigh and say, okay, I got to go out there and I got to cuss a little less and I got to drink a little less and I got to tithe a little more. But you missed the point. What you're describing is what one commentator called the moral influence theory that basically says Christians will win the world for Christ through their niceness. The world's being unkind, so, so you be nice. The world is broken and dark, and uh, it's, a, it's a scary place to be. But hey, hold on, here comes the nice Christians. It's all their kindness just going to kind of infiltrate the darkness. Listen, I'm, I'm all in on kindness. And I pray your experience with me has been one of kindness. And when you get close to Jesus, he was, for the most part, it depends on what side of the darkness or light you were on, he was a pretty kind person. But if that's all we have to offer, we're going to miss the mark. And Matthew 5 gives us a new strategy or a new trajectory or or a new direction ahead for the next 10. And it's not the moral influence theory. It's the kingdom embodiment theory. That the life of Jesus would be expressed through the people of the church. So that when you're at work tomorrow or you're at school tomorrow or you're going through crisis Next week, or you get that phone call, or the pressures of the world are around you, and people get around you, they wouldn't just see niceness and kindness. They would see the kingdom of God coming to fruition through your own life. The Beatitudes, when they were lived out, they embody the rule and reign of God. Salt, this radical allegiance to Jesus in a culture of religious compromise. A radical allegiance to Jesus in a culture of spiritual compromise. That's what salt is. And light, this boundary-crossing mission to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is specifically talking about here. We've used the word here, life on the redemptive edge. That's where Jesus is, reaching people who are, who are headed to hell, headed to, to, to separation from him for eternity. And there's Jesus on that redemptive edge just bringing people in. And that's where he has sent us to be, church. Not the cruise ship watching the beautiful sunsets. No, the rescue ship that's headed into the storm. We're not afraid of tension. We're not afraid of being misunderstood or, or not heard very well. There's too much at stake, friends. These are not religious games that we're playing. Jesus is saying if you allow the kingdom of God like a seed to be planted into your life, it will change everything about you. It will change the way you spend money. It will change the way you spend time. It will change the way you interact. It will change the way you forgive. It will change the way you you receive and extend mercy. It will change the way you receive and extend grace. It will change your heart for that annoying coworker that just gets under your skin. And if you will stop seeing them as a bother to your comfortable cruise life, and you'll start seeing them as someone who is dearly loved by God, so much so that he sent you to work with them, so that you would be the kingdom of God in their midst, that you would be salt and light. It changes everything. This call of the salt is to be faithful and potent and countercultural in our vision of what the good life actually is. In the first century, salt was such a very, very precious commodity. Most Roman soldiers 
were actually paid <clears throat> in salt. And so if a Roman soldier wasn't doing his job, that's where we get the phrase, he's not worth his salt. Right? It was so valuable because it, that's, they used it to preserve things, to give flavor to things. <clears throat> and it's not grandiose. It's not dynamite going off. It's just a little salt sprinkled. And this is how we do it, friends. We live lives of integrity in the small things, of excellence in the small things, of the kingdom of God in the small things. So if someone tells you an off-color, dirty joke at work, and you all laugh about it, and then the Holy Spirit puts a check on your heart, and you have to circle back around at the end of that meeting, and not in a holier-than-thou way, but say, you know what, you said this joke, and man, that just really doesn't line up with what I stand for, and that's just not who Jesus is, and so I just want to apologize for, for the role I played in that. You, you see what I'm saying? Integrity and excellence in the small things. Salt. A mom with an anxious heart that you meet at the grocery store or the soccer field and you're able to share, redirect her hope. You listen well and redirect her hope. And the hope that comes from you literally could change this woman's life. This is what it means to be salty. 1 John 2, verse 2, I'm going to read this in the message paraphrase. Here's how we can be sure that we know God is the right way, that we keep his commandments. If someone claims, hey, I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's obviously a liar. His life doesn't match up with his words. But the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's maturing love. This is the only way to be sure that we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. You see the salt, the saltiness. Whoever claims to live in him should walk as Jesus walked, should live as Jesus lived. We should always be asking ourselves this question. How can the vision and values and love and call of Jesus manifest themselves through my personality at my job and the situation that I'm in. If Jesus, as Willard says it, were living through me, how would he act? What would he say? How would he respond? To the degree that that becomes the thought and vision of our lives is the degree that we will be salty in this world. If not... It's no longer good for anything, he says, Jesus says in verse 13, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. John Stott calls this road dust. Just not making a big impact on anything. Not noticed, no change. We are to be kingdom disciples in the midst of so many other options. And we keep asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Show me. Move my heart. Make me aware of what's going on in the world. Send me. Someone needs a meal. Someone needs an encouraging word. Someone needs to hear the gospel. Send me. Someone needs an anonymous donation. Someone needs a new roof over their head. Someone needs a place to live. Some little kid needs to be adopted. Send me. That's salt. Often as a preacher, you'd think most of the fruit of my ministry would come from 
the preaching or teaching or counseling, but I've found something so far different to be true. Most of the fruit of my ministry have come by how I've treated people who are far different from me, mostly through one-on-one conversations when I listen to the Holy Spirit. And he says, Luke, I want you to go ask this man if you can pray for them. I want you to I want you to encourage this brother. I want you to encourage this sister. I want you to give this person some money. Now listen, we're going to miss these prompts of the Spirit if if, if it's all about our life and our vision. If we're on a cruise ship, we're not going to see any of this. But if you'll slow down just enough to hear the whisper of God in your heart, he will open up so many opportunities for you tomorrow. Don't think big and dramatic. Think potent and faithful where God's planted you. Potent and faithful. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And then he says, you're the light of the world. Light. Collectively, not you specifically. You collectively are the light of the world. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. No one builds a new house and mounts the recessed lighting in the floor and then puts a rug over it. No one puts the the headlights under the mat. No one puts a flashlight in their pocket. That That would make no sense. No, a light is to dispel darkness. And they would be using these little hand lamps that they would be very, just a little small, just think of a pie plate or something even smaller than that with a little oil in it. And it would just put just a little light. Maybe you came to our Christmas Eve candlelight service and, you know, one light and we cut the lights off and it is pitch black and there's one candle burning. And then it begins to spread and begins to spread and begins to spread. And then the whole room has this dispelling of darkness through all of us holding the candle. That's the picture. That we're the light of the world. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That's not the point of the light. What is light meant to do? It's to dispel darkness. And friends, there's no greater time for us to be lights in the world. Our our world, our country, our city, the environments we live in are getting further and further away from the truth of God. You see it through policies and you see it through laws and you see it through what's accepted. You see it through addiction. So much darkness. And we're the light. But instead of being the light, Christians, we've put our lamps away and we've joined in the darkness activity. Friends, we've got to be the light. In the Bible, this is one of the central themes of Scripture and Luke 1's birth narrative. That the light was coming to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Speaking of the ministry of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4. It's the glory of God and the face of Christ. And John 1, 9. He, Jesus, is the true light coming into the world. Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. In Colossians 1, it says that we as a church, we as believers have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We are the light of the world. What Jesus was getting after in this sermon was people who took the light of God to those who were living in darkness. I love how Jason said it in the video from Uganda to your neighbor across the street. From moving cities to plant churches that God might be stirring in your heart to having an awareness tomorrow as you're at work that you are salt and light this is not about just having Christian hope in a generic sense. These are these nice, hopeful Christians 
No, to be salty is speaking of our everyday practice of potent discipleship. We are conforming our lives into the image of Christ. We're allowing the Holy Spirit to do its work. And we need help from other believers. As iron sharpenings iron, that's what Proverbs says. And sparks are going everywhere as, as the gold is heated up and the dross is removed. This potent discipleship where we can link arms with each other and we can partner together to become more and more Christ-like. And then to be light is to intentionally take the compelling hope of Jesus into the darkness. How do I take what I have? This is the question we should be asking. How do I take what I have and bring it to the people who need it most? And that could be your family. And that could be your neighbors. And that could be your coworkers, And that could be the people that you play on soccer teams and baseball teams with. That could be anybody. How do I take the light of the gospel? Well, I've been rescued out of the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. Now that light resides in me. And I have this commission from Jesus not forced or duty, no, just out of the love. What is, as it said in Corinthians, the, the love of Christ is what compels me. That we would take the light into very dark places. Remember the framework of this message specifically was to the Jews. And all they wanted to do was get on the cruise ship. They wanted to get rid of the Romans and the other, gen, other, other Gentiles that were around them, the Samaritans, so they could just live. In, they just wanted to go worship and comfort and peace. This is why Jesus was such a disappointment to them. It's what eventually got him killed. In essence, even in this sermon, he's announcing his ministry. He's laying it down. This is his sermon. He says, oh, 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 we're not getting rid of the Romans. I want you to just scooch over a little bit and invite them to your table. Oh, we're not getting rid of the Samaritans. I want you to build a little home, a little room onto your house and invite them to live there. Oh, oh, we're not getting rid of the Gentiles. I want you to sell half of what you own so that you can bless other people through generosity of the people that you hate. Friends, this is not a suggestion. And this is not just like, you know, Tim Tebow Christians here. These crazy disciples. No, no, you know what? This is everyday Christianity. This is what Jesus said would define us. That we would give those that we hate the place of honor at our gatherings. That we would love our enemies. That we would bless those who persecute you. This is not kindness. This is a radical paradigm shift. In the same way, friends, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. They may see your salt and light. And again, not glorify you, but glorify your Father who is in heaven. Spurgeon said it this way, the object of our shining is not that men may see how good we are, nor even see us at all, but they may see grace in us and God in us. And cry out, what a father these people must have. Over the Thanksgiving break, I reread uh, part of a book that I had read uh, maybe 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, Philip Yancey called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he tells a true story. 
in this book about this little girl who was from Travis City, Michigan. And this little girl's from Travis City, Michigan, and she grew up with some, in her words, old-fashioned parents that tended to overreact to her nose ring and the music she listens to and the length of her skirts and they grounded her a few times and when that continued to happen she just got so angry inside I hate you she would scream at her parents and on one occasion after one of these fights and after she had been grounded she she mentally decided to enact the plan that she had rehearsed in her head uh, several times that she was just going to run away. And this barely teenager snuck out in the middle of the night and she decided that she would go to Detroit. Her parents would probably look for her at the, at the beach or at some other place in Florida or California. That's probably where she would go. That's where they would look for her. But they would never look in Detroit. At that moment, Detroit was just a terrible place to be with the gangs and the crime. And that's where she went. Her second day there at the bus stop, she meets a man who comes up and says, Hey, are you okay? Do you, you need anything? And she's like, No, I'm good. He's like, No, really. Do you need a place to live and some food? And she's like, I really do. She became good friends with this man, much older than her. and He gave her a place to live, and he also introduced her to drugs. She's just recreational drugs, and she took a pill, and she began to feel and experience things that she had never experienced before, and she loved it, and it just confirmed in her heart that my parents were trying to keep real life from me. I did the right thing by running away. The recreational drug turned into more serious drugs, and she became really addicted to drugs. And at one point, the, her boyfriend came to her and said, hey, these, these, these drugs aren't free. You're going to have to pay for them. And I can teach you what men like, and maybe you can kind of, you know, extend some favors to some of my friends, and we'll just call it all even on the drugs. She had already compromised her sexuality at that point. Her new identity was going to be something so far from the little farm she grew up on. And she, she said, okay, yes, let's, let's do it. And she began this kind of life. And life continued pretty good. She was living in a penthouse and had everything she wanted. And since she was underage, men paid premium for her. Occasionally, she would think back about her, about her folks back home. and It was just passing. I'm not that little girl anymore. I'm, I'm this new, reinvented woman now. Life continues for several months, even a year. And the man, her boyfriend, noticed that she was getting sick. And she probably had some STDs. She had a cough and her complexion was just looking terrible. And he said, hey, listen, we can't, we can't play with this kind of stuff. And he kicked her out. She's on the streets of Detroit and it's turning wintertime and she's cold and she's still doing tricks for men but on the street, but just enough to pay to support her habits. And she's homeless and she's sleeping in front of a Walmart. She's laying there cold covered up with newspaper dark band circles under her eyes her cough worsening and all of a sudden she has this thought 
She no longer feels like the woman of the world. She feels like a little girl that's lost in this cold, frightening city, and she begins to whimper and cry. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls the newspaper tight around her. She begins to shiver. And something jolts this memory, a single memory she had of summer in Trevor City. A million cherry trees bloom at once, and her golden retriever dashing through the rows of these blossomy trees and chasing a tennis ball. And she thinks, God, why did I leave home? Pain stabs in her heart. She thinks, my dog eats better back home than I eat. She's sobbing. She knows she wants to go home, but she knows she left home and she'll never be received back there. All the things that she said to her parents. She thought, well, maybe there's a shot. So she decides she's going to call home. She's going to head to Canada and reinvent her life, but the bus has got to stop in Traverse City. And so she calls home. Voicemail picks up. She hangs up. She calls her dad again and her voicemail picks up. She hangs up again. She calls a third time and she decides to just leave it just a brief message. She said, Dad and Mom, I don't, I don't know if you'll have anything to do with me again. I said some of the most hateful things. But I'm going to head to Canada. I'm going to reinvent my life. And I got a 15-minute stop in Trevor City. And if, if you'd have me back, if you'd help me get on my feet, I'll be there for 15 minutes. Six or seven-hour drive from Detroit with all the stops and Every time she's rehearsing her plan and her speech to her dad, she's thinking, man, this is such a dumb plan. I shouldn't have come up with this plan. This is, what if they don't, my dad, doesn't, he might not even check his voicemail. That might not even be his phone anymore. I, they pull in the bus station and the driver says, folks, we got 15 minutes. And the thought hit her, 15 minutes. The next 15 minutes would define the rest of her life. She gets off the bus and She's so ashamed of how she looked and her nicotine-stained fingers, and she's just so weary. And she's there's just no, my parents aren't even going to recognize me. I I look such such a mess. In the corner of her eye, she sees this big banner hanging up, this welcome home, and she thinks to herself, man, how, how nice would it be to have people that loved you like that family loves whoever's coming home? She looks up, and it's her family her cousins and brothers and sisters and grandma even is there. She locked eyes with her parents and they're running to embrace her. She starts this little phrase that she'd been rehearsing. Dad, Dad, I am so sorry. I, I know I didn't. He said, shh. Got no time for that. got a banquet prepared at home. Half the town's there ready, ready to welcome you in. Only thing that matters is that you're home. I read that story at the office. I'm glad Jason wasn't there. I was crying like a, like a crazy dude. No time for apologies. Your dad said you'll be late for the party. The banquet's waiting for you at home. Friends, this is my heart for our church. If we miss out on grace, we miss out on everything. 
And the enemy has distracted us with all these other things. And we're debating all these other things. And the church is supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to extend grace. Well, how much grace? Look, grace upon grace. How many times should we forgive? Seven? Seventy times seven, bro. You just keep forgiving because this is the heart of God. Friends, this is the heart of God for you. And maybe over this pandemic, you've kind of slipped into this apathy or melancholy. You're just kind of just existing and you're not walking with God. You hadn't felt him speak to your heart in a really long time. And this is his banner saying, welcome home. His heart for you is so big that he would send his only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to be innocent and killed on a cross, to be silent before his accusers because he wasn't dying for himself, he was dying for you. So that some 2,000 years later, you could hear this beautiful story of the gospel and of grace and that you would come home. I'm gonna read this Sermon on the Mount to you and I'm gonna pray and we're gonna be done. We're gonna sing a little bit, but if you would just take a posture of prayer and I'm gonna read this aloud. If you would just listen to the words of Jesus. These are my words. These are the words of Jesus. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if a salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, can we, can we repent and can we admit that we, we've lived for our own selves a lot the past year? Maybe the past 10 and we've done what we wanted and what would be most comfortable. And we've ignored your call in our life to be people of grace. To smell like Jesus and as people got close, they 
they didn't see that at all in us. And Lord, would you forgive us for our selfishness and our distraction for making things about us? Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace. While we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, I pray in our, maybe listening at home or in our congregation today, that someone would step across the line of faith. They would, they would give up running from you and they would turn around and they'd give you 15 minutes. And I know you're going to meet them there. Running towards them. Maybe there's some in this room who've never known you as father. They've been trying to figure things out on their own for a long time, and your invitation is still as clear today as it was on this day that Jesus preached this message. Your invitation to come home. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts today? Supernatural work. Carve the things out that shouldn't be there. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance after all. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone. Take as much time to pray where you're at. We're going to sing in just a minute.